You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this are, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm Analytics not. don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a baller. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. I'm Chad McMallon, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, it's not Neil Payne. I know. Away today on vacation. Uh, so without Neil here, we do have Kate Fagan, ESPNW columnist, right. and our interim stat man this week. What kind of training did Neil put you through, Kate? Wow. You know, to make sure that you were, you were up to snuff. Well, we did like a 72-hour intensive, okay. sort of like a teacher training. Uh-huh. So I haven't slept much. And but he basically downloaded for his time at the Hawks, <laughs> his first two years here at 538, thereabouts two years. So I'm actually just chock full of information at this point. You're brimming. Yeah. I mean, I, How are you I, keeping it all organized? That's no, it's, it is a lot. I have been looking forward to this podcast so that I can at least <laughs> deliver some of it to the people. Just like release some pressure from the valve. Mm-hmm. Uh, excellent. Well, today we uh, are going to talk about DeMarcus Cousins, who is now a New Orleans Pelican after being traded from the Sacramento Kings in a late night trade after the All-Star game. Uh, 530th Kyle Wagner will be here to talk about that. And then we will talk about the NCAA men's bracket. Where do things stand? I feel like we haven't talked about it in quite a while. It's coming down to the wire. Um, and so a guest from SB Nation will be here for that. And then James Harden thinks he's the best player in the world. Uh, as he told Time Magazine recently, we will, we will discuss whether James Harden is even remotely right uh, with with Kyle Wagner again, who will be back for that segment. And then, finally, a significant digit on a basketball game that I saw over the weekend that really, like, blew my mind. Wait, in person? In person, in Iowa, in in the great cornfields of Iowa. Were they wooden bleachers? Oh, yeah. They I recently spent time my in a high school gym. To feel the yeah, I do. I do not remember it being that uncomfortable. Wow. I'm with you. It was. Uh, so my, we'll talk about this later. But my friends and I have been doing the same college basketball road trip for uh, seven or eight years now to a different place every year, mm-hmm. and we noticed that if we, we had sat on those bleachers eight years ago, we would have felt quite different yes. than we do now. Uh, but first, before we get to any of that for the show, can we do a few small housekeeping things? Uh, the Sloan Conference, our live show at the Sloan Conference, continues to be on the calendar. <laughs> continues to be live. Uh, it continues to be on March 3rd, uh, which is a Friday. Uh, we last week asked you to send in reviews of, uh, of the show and some proof that you were doing some reviews of the show. Many of you did that. Super appreciative of it. Um, and in exchange, we would put you in a little lottery for however many Sloan tickets we have available. Not sure how many tickets that is quite yet, uh, but uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. If you can send in by uh by friday morning uh what is that friday february 24th you will be entered into the lottery so keep the reviews coming thanks very much for those of you who've done it even those of you who don't want to go to sloan who just wanted to send a little love yeah who were just like hey look i don't want to go to sloan but you made a call for reviews and i'm here for you and i gave you some reviews hot takedown nation we're coming 
Mm-hmm. We're coming. Uh, all right. I think that's all the business I have. Kate, is there anything on your on your agenda that you wanted to check no, off? No, I'm really, really excited to get to the stats. Okay. Because you just <laughs> yeah. you're feeling like you ate yeah. too many burgers and exactly. you just need to lie down for a bit. Uh, all right, let's uh let's get to let's get to the NBA. Last Sunday after the NBA All Star game news broke, while basically people were still on the on the court sort of doing their post game interviews, uh was watching ESPN and, and uh DeMarcus Cousins was traded from the Sacramento Kings to the New Orleans Pelicans, Cousins and Omri Caspi, uh for a suite of players that we will talk about shortly. Buddy Heald, Tyreek Evans, Langston Galloway, along with two draft picks here to talk about that trade is 538's Kyle Wagner. Hello, Kyle. Hey, Chad. Kyle, actually, before we before we get either your or Kate's impressions, let, let's listen to Stephen A. Smith's impressions, and, and then we can take it from there. I'll give it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A heist took place last night, and the Sacramento Kings should be ashamed of themselves. You don't let go of the best big man in basketball, and I got Buddy Heald, even though I like him. Tyreek Evans, perpetually injured, can play but perpetually injured, and Langston Galloway, along with first and second round pick. You got to be kidding me. This is DeMarcus Cousins we talking about here. So a heist took place. Sacramento got robbed. The mayor needs to put out an APB to re- try to recover DeMarcus Cousins. You guys, that was actually similar to how I felt right after this trade. <laughs> Most of us, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I normally we can play takes of the coming from the first take or undisputed and I'm like, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> but this was actually how I felt in the first like 12 hours of this trade. And it actually wasn't until I settled down a little bit, read some things, listened to more people that I started to ask the question of whether this trade and how quote unquote lopsided it was, was a reflection of how poorly the Sacramento Kings are run or perhaps a reflection of how the league feels about the value of DeMarcus Cousins. And I think initially you're like, the Kings just got fleeced. And then the more you started to read about it, I'm not saying they couldn't have gotten some higher value for DeMarcus Cousins at certain points along the way. But at some point, it might also be a reflection of what the market was willing to pay for DeMarcus Cousins in that moment. I mean, that's probably right. But the the Kings aren't innocent there. Like they have created that market I, for DeMarcus. And Cousins. that's where the and that's me where the uh, like the uproar should be is like how you entered this season, even not knowing what your play was with DeMarcus Cousins. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I I heard the the room this trade was rumored beforehand and we were talking to our friend Mina and like she was like is this going to happen I was like no that's just a heat check like the pelicans are just seeing you know what they say back and then they took the deal like it was crazy but i mean they were um as we've heard um reports come out of the other deals that were coming around the lakers weren't even willing to give up brandon ingram um the uh the raptors were maybe thinking about giving uh Vassilonius or whatever their center and uh, like there just weren't good deals like to be had. So let's talk about with, let's talk about the non off the court, otherwise known as on the court uh, values and, and and characteristics of Cousins versus the package that came back from from New Orleans. Uh, Kyle, you wrote uh, a piece uh, on Monday on President's Day about sort of what 538's projection models suggest uh, the value of Cousins is over the next six seasons uh, based on this this Carmelo. Uh, Carmelo. Carmelo. Excuse me. Carmelo, not Carmelo. I was like, are we putting an mm-hmm. accent on it to avoid its correlation Carmelo's a whole separate thing. This is this is oh. Nate Silver's tyranny that he runs over this website. Elo find its way in Carmelo is an actual thing? Carmelo is our Elo ratings derived from Carmelo. I'm not kidding. 
Oh my gosh. So you have so wait, just so the listeners oh, understand yep, and I can yep, understand, yep, you yep. have Elo and you have Carmelo, and then you have a separate metric, Carmelo. I would prefer the U in that sentence to be Nate has, but yes, five thirty eight has all three things. And here's the thing, Nate claims he swears up and down that that was just a coincidence. Wasn't yeah. wasn't planned at yeah. all. He he just He's your boss, right? I mean, yeah, on the good days. <laughs> um so uh but anyway, so so Carmelo projects cousins to produce 46.5 wins above replacement over the next six seasons. That is worth, on an open market, uh, $285 million. What came back to the Pelicans basically hits a uh, hundred plus, uh, barely over $100 million over the next six seasons, if, if you, over the next five seasons, excuse me, if you squint the right way. Uh, and so it seems like a pretty no-brainer as far as the talent that exchange hands. That, that, uh, that Stephen Smith, Smith is correct, right. right. Yeah. Right. So, um, and I mean, even that is just if they hang on to those players and they're not going to, like, Tyreek Evans probably isn't going to, you know, he's definitely not going to be there next season. They he might got out of Sacramento once. Yeah. You think he wants to be back in Sacramento? I don't think so, no. Um, no. I did, I went up there and did a profile on him when I worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer because he's a Philly kid and he was in his first year there. And it was very clear in talking to the guys around him that, like, he was specifically there on his grind to win rookie of the year. And get out of Sacramento. So I can't even imagine how he feels like <laughs> getting traded back to Sacramento. So yeah, I don't think that that's going to be a long-term solution. I mean, he, um, the Tyreek Evans being freed is going to be something that's interesting, like down the road. But um, like we can, we don't have to talk about Tyreek now. Yeah, I, I still believe in him. <laughs> I do too. I think he's an awesome player. Mm-hmm. But with the Demarcus Cousins, um, I think it's hard to understand where the $220 million plays a role. And I know, Chad, you mm-hmm. mentioned like $285 of the value he has as a player. But the reason that it felt as if over the last month we were getting all these love affair signs coming out of Sacramento, DeMarcus Cousins saying he wants his, raf- his jersey in the rafters, and the team saying publicly that they had no intention of trading him and that he's going to sign this extension, mm-hmm. this $220 million extension. It's a special extension for players like him yes. that no other team can give him besides the Kings. Right. Yeah, and at the time it felt like $220 million for DeMarcus Cousins was worth it because of the value numbers that you said to Chad, but I don't know where then the balance against that $220 million, um, where the balance against it is on the ledger for his behavior on the court, his behavior off it with the Sacramento media. I mean, if you're, if you're really following that situation, he, there was also like a, a balance on the other side of the ledger that wasn't in DeMarcus Cousins' favor. Of course. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, like this is uh, Kevin Artovitz wrote a big thing last month uh, trying to break down like how much of this is the Kings, how much of it is Boogie. And I mean, we're about to find out like this is the big experiment. He's going to go somewhere else that New Orleans, you know, isn't a pristine franchise, but, you know, it's, it's also not the Kings. Um, but the thing about that 280 whatever million dollar figure is that um, it's said on an open market, and in general, um, it's it's an there there's some complications there. It's an open market where there's no max player salary, but there is a salary cap or whatever else. But it's still with the idea that it's a more open market than we actually have, and because we don't have an open market, it's uh, it's a pretty there's a lot of friction in it. Um, you can't really add up player value the way that you would in baseball. So, I mean, that's why you get lopsided deals like this, because you have to position yourself to build on a certain kind of timeline along, like, so that you're not blowing up your salaries before you, you know, amass enough talent under the cap. And 
with that, I think the calculation is that, okay, so we can pay uh, DeMarcus Cousins $209 million, I think, is the extension, plus whatever else he had on there. Um, But if we do that, then we're going to have to build a team around him. And uh, with that, like, we're not going to be able to cram enough, like, you know, surplus value around him, which is how you, you know, really end up winning championships. Right, because they're not going to pay the luxury tax. Probably not. I mean, it doesn't. That doesn't seem like a franchise that wants to go over the luxury tax. So I want. I want to move to talking about what this means for the Pelicans and and how this whole experiment is going to work. Uh, and I say experiment because he may not resign with with the Pelicans, as we've been discussing. And so as a result, that package starts to maybe look a little different if he only ends up playing for the next uh, uh, four months or so for for the Pelicans. Kyle, I think we talked uh, in the last 48 hours, you think the package is still good even for four months? Is that is, Am I misquoting you there? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's no-brainer because, I mean, they didn't really give up all that much. They give up Buddy Heald, who was, you know, a fine but kind of middling rookie mm-hmm. and he's also 23 years old already so i mean people have different opinions on you know what age does for rookies but generally the older you are the less developing you still have to do and he's demarcus cousins man <laughs> like he's one of the best players in the league and like everything that you look at like every metric that we have says demarcus cousins is one of the best players well, so, so you think even for the four-month rental if it turns out to be a rental and demarcus cousins doesn't re-sign with New Orleans, do you think there was still enough, there was, there was value in it for New Orleans? Well, so he's signed through next year, too. So, right. I mean, it's, it's like, so he's got all of next season and uh, the remainder of this season. And, yeah, just to see what that looks like. Like, we haven't had an experiment with two dominant big men in the front court in, like, this decade, really. You look through, and if you look at the stats... Like, and you try to search for power forward and center, like, it's going to spit back at you stuff like Sean Marion and Amari Stoudemire. That's not quite right. It's going to try to tell you about, like, Zach Randolph and Marcus Saul, Zach Randolph and Eddie Curry, maybe. I mean, there isn't really, really right? There isn't a good comp for it. Like, I mean, I swear to God, the first one that I got was Andre Blatch and Brooke Lopez in that one year that they had that <laughs> little run in, uh, in, uh, Brooklyn. And, like, there just isn't a comp for two really productive offensive, because, you know, like, DeAndre yeah. Jordan and Blake Griffin is not quite the same thing because Blake Griffin's not quite a power forward in oh, the oh. same way that so, so Andre... Sure. Um, I mean, DeAndre Jordan just, like, doesn't... Like, he's a stats darling, but, like, not quite in the same way that, like, they are with, like, they're both offensive uh, forces also. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways, like, where you think, like, oh, they can't possibly, you know, both sit on the low block the whole game. It's going to clog up the offense. But, I mean, like, no one's tried it recently either. So, I mean... So, so sorry, and I want to just clarify. I did speak earlier that he does have another year on the contract beyond beyond the next four months. What I was trying to get my head around is sort of like, it's been so long since the modern vanguard of how to run an efficient offense was centered around multiple big men because we talk about all this guard play and about flex fours and or stretch fours and 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 sort of uh, players who can uh, small lineups uh, that can have a power forward play center and then everyone else sort of rotates um, and the positions rotate a bit smaller. What does the if it, what does an efficient offense look like with a center and a power forward in today's NBA? I'm concerned a little bit about the evolution of the game that will allow for two big men to even move smoothly on the court. And, and Kyle, maybe you can uh, maybe you have counter thoughts on this, but like like Chad, you said that all of the big men around whom offenses were built, it was just that it was like a singular big man because then you had some kind of like 
triangle offense or motion offense where there's a lot of movement through the lane. I mean, I know both those guys are more mobile than like old, old school centers, but where is the space now in the NBA game? Maybe they need to get like two to three ridiculously good three point shooters. Like that's not cheap anymore if you're the New Orleans Pelicans. Well, it's not cheap unless you make it. So I mean, so this is the big problem that uh, the Thunder ran into, where Sam Presti had his core players and never found that Danny Green type guy, that Damari Carroll and Atlanta type guy, to to hit those three pointers to create that space for you know cheaper than he's going to pay for it on the open market, and like that's what the Pelicans have to do now. But I mean, the successful teams you look around like everyone else is pulling guys from the late lottery or late first round or, you know, even the D-League sometimes who can play those wing positions and, you know, give you pretty good production. That's interesting that that the, the development of talent within college basketball and the NBA is such that you can now find more of these people who allows that who allows the big men to operate is, is, right. your, is your point. And, and the best teams are, you know, tend to be better at that than, you know, the teams that are you know, struggling to keep up. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you, yeah. so you, Kyle, are optimistic that this this experiment could work if they figure out the movement. In the I'm optimistic that it could work. Okay, like it, it's it, within it's like the starter. constellation of possibilities. But I mean, there are obvious problems. Like the spacing is going to be a problem that they're going to have to solve, and they're going to have to do it with you know adding personnel or whatever else. But I mean, Boogie is a monster. I mean, one of the stats that we were talking about in the article was that he's assisted on 42 percent of his two point shots, not even his threes. Um, that is a ridiculous number for a, a big man. Ridiculously like, low. Ridiculously low numbers. So most, uh, most you know, star big men. So we're talking like Anthony Davis most years. And Davis this year is like a down at 60s. But like mostly you're going to be above 70 or at 80%. Because the idea being that a point guard or someone else is distributing as you either uh, come into the lane or, or post up. Right. It's a pick right. and roll and then they lead yeah. you into a shot as opposed to like an old school like Mike and style player. I'm not yeah. going to go that far old school where they've got like an array of moves and they're able to just like dump it down low and score. Right. DeAndre Jordan is is not, you know, no. creating his own shot. He's not doing the mic and drill before <laughs> practice or maybe he is, but it's not working. But so Cousins is like has a number of things like that are just ridiculous this year. 37 percent usage rate by the basketball reference version, uh, which is like the would have been like the highest number that we'd seen in years if it wasn't for Russell uh, this year. Um, he's got that 42 percent. So he's creating his own shot. And he's also has his best true shooting percentage of his career. So he's using so much of the ball. He's doing it all on his own. And he's still being more efficient than he's ever been. And so, like, it kind of tells me that there could be no space in that offense. And he's still going to go get his, which is, like, a really valuable thing. Well, how do those usage numbers and in, in cousins with the ball relate to Anthony Davis and how Anthony Davis succeeds? Right. And that's the big question. So... Anthony Davis also has a crazy high usage number. I think it's 32% or using 32% of possessions. There's a bunch of different ways to calculate that. But they're both very, very high. And typically when two guys get on the floor together, um, th- those are going to go down naturally um, and in a way that, like, eases the burden from both. But because they're both bigs and, like, we haven't seen them, you know, passing to each other or whatever, like, we're going to have to see um, – you know, how if they actually are lessening the burden of each other or just bringing more defenders around each other so that right. even when they're getting a pass, like there's like three guys there already. Right. You, and they're you trying you to run through though, the lane and knocking into each other on right. cross You would think that the two of them are people who certainly can space it better than than most big guys who, who are right. going to be high usage rate guys. So so perhaps there's there's uh, what we talk about with Golden State all the time, which is uh, an offense that shouldn't work, maybe can work because of special 
uh, personnel that that's able to pull it off. Yeah, and like so, he's, this is like a pessimistic read of it. Like so, one of Anthony Davis's best um, qualities, he gets down the floor pretty fast. Boogie is not known for doing that. Um, so they can spread it out. Well, well, so here's the thing. Like, so Boogie takes so many three-pointers this year, right? And he's just but, lag behind. He does that. He just yeah. walks into the three eight seconds into the shot clock where he's just crossing half court, steps into it, just cans it sometimes. But I, I love mean, the, the cherry-picking offense, but, but, but from reverse where he's not already down the court, but he comes into the court later. Well, I mean, like, so they can make that – I mean, I'm kind of half-joking, but, like, they can make that work if, like, right. if Davis is stretching the right, defense down right. and, like, Boogie's just like, Here, well, I can hit this three. Yeah, right. that's a natural separation of space for the two oh, of them. Kyle, I think they have an assistant coach opening uh, down yeah. in New Orleans. All right, uh, Kyle, you will be back later on the show, but, but thanks for uh, talking about Boogie. Yeah, not a problem. It is February 21st as we record this, and somehow we've just not talked – about college basketball that much this year. Really, either side of the bracket. We talked about UConn women's 100-game uh, streak a bit uh, a week or two yeah. ago. Uh, but we the men's the men's tourney or the men the men's side we just haven't touched. And so here to uh, to help us uh, sort it out is Chris Dobertine, SB Nation's resident bracketologist. Chris, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you. It's a, it's the busiest time of year for me, but I. You know, when I got the invitation, I had to come on and and share my thoughts. Okay, I think let's start with with Gonzaga. That seems like a reasonable place to begin, as they are number one in the country. Chris, we have this conversation more or less every year. When is the Gonzaga team to take seriously uh, for tournament success? Uh, they just never uh, seem to be able to fully puncture through. Is this year's team uh, one that that we're going to see in the Final Four? I'm, I'm not really sure. This is this is a different. Gonzaga team, and that you know they, you know they're continue, they continue to be undefeated, twenty eight zero. Um, they've got you know a good mix of players. They got Prezenak Karnowski in the in the middle, Zach Collins, you know another decent forward. They have really good guards, and you know Nigel Williams, Goss, and Josh Josh Perkins. But they haven't really been tested since oh late December of the two games against St. Mary's. But the thing with Gonzaga is, Chris, that, is that they never can be, right? Like Ken, So Ken Pomeroy's ratings yeah. have them as number one in the country. And just by uh, you know uh, the nature of them being the WCC as opposed to the Pac-12, this, we, we go through the same – it's almost like – for Gonzaga, it's almost like college football where we're having a conversation around their schedule as much as we are around their actual talent. Yeah, I mean I saw them in November – over Thanksgiving at the tournament at Disney's tournament in Orlando, and they looked like complete world beaters back then. But we didn't know, you know, how good Florida was going to be, and that looks looks to be their best win right now. And Iowa State, you know, has struggled a little bit. You know, everybody thought that that game was, you know, a real coming out party for the Bulldogs. And you know, with the with Iowa State not being as good as we thought they were going to be back then, you know, it's it's a little bit of a hold off. And then St. Mary's and the rest of the WCC. You know, other than the Gales, has been a bit down. So, yeah, they haven't really been tested since late December. That's going to be a major thing for them when they get into the tournament because they're going to really have to adjust themselves, not in that first 116 game, but potentially in that 8 or 9 seed game where they could play a team like Oklahoma State, which, you know, is another team that's very good offensively that could really push them. And if they don't get things together really quickly, they're going to be in a lot of trouble, and it's going to be the same story again. All right, so I I think it was probably about a week ago. Williams Goss, the, you know the Gonzaga guard who who you just mentioned, you know said something that G- Gonzaga has to get to a Final Four to kind of get the monkey off its back and to establish itself as like a legitimate powerhouse in college basketball. Some, it was something of, of that nature, and mm-hmm. th- this is specific to Gonzaga, but also kind of a larger point about the randomness of the NCAA tournament. When I was thinking about that, 
for Gonzaga, I was like, I don't know if it wants to necessarily attach itself that it has to get, has to win an NCAA title, has to get to a Final Four to be considered legitimate on the college basketball front because of the randomness of the NCAA mm-hmm. tournament. I mean, if you look at Gonzaga having made the tourney like 18 consecutive times, they've basically performed in the NCAA tournament as you'd expect, if it, like expected wins, you know, when I took a look at that metric last week. I'm wondering kind of where you stand on whether it, a program really needs to get to a Final Four or win it to like kind of establish itself. I understand from a fan perspective, but I'm asking more from your opinion from like a statistical, analytical perspective. I really don't think it does because, as you said, the NCAA tournament is very random, and you're going to have great teams. I mean, you look at what Kansas is doing, you know, in the Big 12 and how many conference titles they've won in a row, and, you know, how many years have they gotten to the Final Four or won a national championship in all those years? You know, when you have 351 teams in Division One, and you have, you know, at any given year you have, you know, 15 to 20 that could potentially win a national championship, when you only have four spots to actually make the final weekend, it's very hard to crack that group. But the consistency to me about Gonzaga, that they've been able to do it, you know, and attract, you know, national television audience and get, you know, themselves in really great tournaments in November and, you know, get all those marquee non-conference games to do it consistently since 1999, that to me is the more impressive thing for them. All right, so let, let's move on to uh, to Villanova, I think, who, who's number two in the Ken Palm ratings. Obviously, the national champions uh, last year uh, – and has sort of been steady and, and good all year long, which almost makes me, makes me uh, suspicious for some reason. Mm-hmm. I, I can't quite articulate why. But, you know, is this the same Villanova team for, for people who are just tuning into to ba- college basketball now, or, or are they playing pretty differently than last year? There's one big difference with this team that might make a difference in March and that they don't have the big interior presence they had last year because Danny Lochefu graduated. But, you know, offensively, they more than make up for it. And really, they only get in trouble when they take on teams like, you know, Virginia that can really kind of slow them down or Marquette that can kind of match them in terms of their guard play in terms of, you know, getting kind of those perimeter shots going. So it's a very similar team, but that I, I think that one big difference in not having that, you know, sizable interior presence might come back to hurt them over the next few weeks. All right, so what's your opinion on when it comes to, like, coaching as it relates to the NCAA tournament? Because, you know, there'll be some people who are on the side of, like, well, Jay Wright now, having won a national title and having all this experience, he must have some secret formula or understand how to coach in the tourney. Roy Williams at, at, at I was going to say Kansas, my God, but he's in North <laughs> Carolina now. Um, those type of guys where sometimes you'll build the, the storyline around the fact that maybe a coach does have some secret knowledge when it comes to tournament time. Or do you buy into that at all that there's anything coaches, not anything, but that coaches can do something so important that it actually can impact how their program performs in the tourney? I, I think that one thing that they can actually control is the fact that in the tournament, they have a little bit more time to work with their players because TV timeouts are a lot longer. You get, you know, even the shorter, you know, 30 second timeouts end up usually being a little bit longer because of inserting those television commercials in there. So they have a little bit more time than they have in the regular season. And that, that's kind of the one thing, but it's kind of funny that you bring that up because you kind of think back going into last year, you know, Jay Wright didn't really have that reputation of being all that great of a coach. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they win six games in a row and win the national championship. So, you know, it's, it's, we talk about results and it's kind of those types of things that really can get a coach to, to have that reputation when for many, many years, 
they might not have. Yeah, explaining explaining variance and you know whether or not w- right. the ball bouncing one way or another to recruits maybe is not the uh, part of the pitch. Um, so so no. let's. Uh, I think we only have time to talk about two more two more teams. Uh, so let's let's go to uh, or two more sort of areas uh, of the country. So let's go to Duke UNC. Uh, Duke is, I believe, a game behind in the ACC standings. They have one game left to play with one another. This Duke team has been hot and cold. It's been dramatic with Grayson Allen and with uh, Coach K's absence. And uh, this UNC team has been much more steady, it seems, from the outside looking in at least. Uh, is this is this going to be a, a sort of classic Duke UNC sprint to the finish here. Uh, you know, are we going to look back on these teams and, and say this was sort of um, a high point for the rivalry in, in, in five or ten years? I, I think so because this this year's schedule set up really weirdly for both Duke and UNC, and that the ACC slates were kind of backloaded for both. I mean, earlier in the season we were talking more about Florida State kind of being, you know, the ACC favorite. Now they've slid back a bit, and Duke and North Carolina both have. You know, a lot of games against high-quality opponents coming up. So, you know, the two teams we kind of thought were going to be there at the beginning of the year are there now. And going into that game, I mean, you know, North Carolina is going to end up playing Louisville, Pitt, and Virginia. You know, Louisville and Virginia, you know, two teams that have been in the ACC hunting. Virginia's fallen off a little bit, and Pitt, you know, has started off well and has also fallen off. Um, but that's, you know, quality one opportunities for them. You know, Duke has Syracuse, Miami, and Florida State going through, and again, three teams that are definitely in the tournament picture. So, you know, with all the struggles that Duke had in particular, the fact that they've, you know, been able to win, you know, seven games in a row and kind of get back into that hunt, you know, to set things up for that March 4th meeting, you know, in Chapel Hill is really kind of, you know, what we kind of thought was going to happen at the beginning of the year. And I think it's really good for the league. Okay, so when it comes to the broader uh, choosing of NCAA tournament teams, like there have been some changes or announced changes about how the NCAA mm-hmm. selection committee is going to use analytics and data and pre- pre- upgrade, I think we would say, some of the metrics mm-hmm. that they use. I mean, I remember when I went down to Indy, home of the NCAA, like a few years ago to see how they select the the the, the tournament, and this was for the women's side. I mean, we looked at that RPI number it was a mm-hmm. huge factor in slating and seeding the team. So what, what's your feeling about how the, the men's side is, from my understanding, going away from right. so the, the RPI so just, to... Just, just for some background yeah. uh, for listeners, uh, there was a, a meeting held by the NCAA in which uh, some, some basketball stats types, including someone from ESPN Stats and Info and a uh, friend of the pod, Ken Pomeroy, uh, was... was um, were present and and they discussed how to create something that would be a better guide than RPI because RPI is lacking in things like being able to distinguish um, wins from home versus wins or losses on the road uh, because the idea being that a home win is easier than a loss to a good team on the road, for example. Um, and so uh, and so they're sort of they're landing on this idea that it should be a melange of metrics that that a lot of things should come together in order to make some super powered new metric as opposed to um, just picking one system. Do you think this has real tangible effects on how they seed the tourney? I think it could. I, I, we need to be a little careful, though, I think, that in terms of what, what the NCAA kind of wants this metric to be. Because when we talk about the RPI, and the RPI is you know, basically a very generic metric that can be, they actually use for other sports as well. They may, may make little tweaks here and there for whatever sport it's going to be. 
And that's always been the big complaint on the basketball side is that it doesn't really kind of take into, you know, account all the nice basketball-related factors that, you know, the Ken Palm ratings and Jeff Sagarin's ratings kind of take into account. So one thing they really have to do is kind of figure out what they want this metric to be, and I think that that's going to be kind of a, a major point of emphasis they've kind of got to figure out over the next couple of months because another thing they said is they don't want to start from scratch. And, and if you're trying to build some kind of composite and you're taking, you know, a metric that measures the way things have played out, you know, that is, you know, more of a reactive metric like the RPI and a more, you know, one that forecasts like Ken Baum and Sagarin, those are two completely different things and they're going to be very hard to actually get those, you know, meshed together. Um, the one thing I will say is that, you know, the other metrics have actually been used in the committee because, you know, individual committee members will go in and bring in their own ideas, their own thoughts, and their own perspectives. And that's a big reason why last year you saw both Wichita State and Vanderbilt end up in the play-in round when, you know, RPI said, yeah, maybe not so much. You know, Ken Palm just said these were two teams that really deserved to be there, and certain voices in the room won out by looking at that particular metric. All right. Chris Daubertine, thanks for joining Hot Takedown and giving us a primer for those of us who, you know, have been occupied with, with other things in, in the sports world, <laughs> football, basketball, what have you. Uh, listeners, you can read Chris's work at SB Nation, where he is their resident bracketologist. Chris, thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me. Okay, now back to the NBA and back with Kyle Wagner. Kyle, welcome back to the show. Hey. <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk about James Harden, uh, who, to Time Magazine... Uh, had a sort of hot take about himself. Uh, so Time asked him, are you the best player in the world right now? Which is just a great way to, to get a good quote out of a, of a, out of a star NBA player. Uh, and Harden says, for sure, I feel like I'm solid in everything. IQ, studying the game. I can score the basketball, make my teammates better. There are not a lot of guys that have all of those character- characteristics in one. They might be way more athletic, can shoot the ball way better, but everything solid in one human body. I like that, by the way. One mm-hmm. human body. You can ask all those top guys who the best player is. Of course, they are going to say themselves because as a basketball player, you're confident in your craft. It's not taking shots at anybody. It's a confidence. So to me, it's like trying to have it both ways, which is saying I am the best player, but all the other folks are the best player too once you ask them. Um, but I think we should talk about this this question about whether James Harden is the best basketball player alive because when you look at basketball reference uh, win shares, for example, which is sort of the, the, the effect that, that he's having uh, towards the Rockets winning games, he's tops in the league this year uh, with 11.2. He's leading the league in assists per game, minutes per game, uh, uh, sort of on, in the top 10 of basically every every category within the NBA, Curry and Westbrook, his most often uh, company. Well, what would you guys say is the metric that stat folks would say delineates, be- quote-unquote, best player in the NBA? I mean, and Neil told me this during our 72 hours of studying, <laughs> but it's just it's slipping my mind right now. Um, it's kind of pick your poison. Um, you, you tend to, like, understand the contours of like what the weaknesses of some are so per which is the john hollinger one that's all over espn um kind of uh, overemphasizes efficiency and can you know uh overemphasize usage a little bit too um but the one we use around here is bpm um that's the uh basketball reference one box plus minus box, box plus minus uh there's also real plus minus which um adds some you know more complex data to that uh that's the espn proprietary one 
And that will give you a little bit of rate read on defense, which is what might separate uh, James Harden from uh, some of his contemporaries. Well, where why do you guys use BPM? Not to stray hard, far from Harden, but I think if we're going to apply some sure. stats, so I want to understand why. So BPM, um, mostly because it's uh, it's from box score data, so it's not reliant on anything that's new that uh, we've just started lo- tracking in the last uh, couple years or couple decades. So that means we can go all the way back to you know the days of George, George Mike and, and you know everyone else. And two George Mike and references on this podcast <laughs> coming back. I like it. That bingo card's filling up. <laughs> And and we can make historical references um, with you know a broad indicator, the kind of the way that we use ELO to like, which isn't a very smart metric for teams or whatever, but it's at least can go back and we can make historical comparisons. So and we should say that uh, that in the offensive BPM, Harden is third this season, uh, behind Russell Westbrook and Isaiah Thomas of, of the Celtics, uh, and in defensive boxes plus minus, he's not in the top twenty. So he disappears. And so so what goes into defensive plus, box plus minus? Is, is it box score stats or is it when he's on the court and, and, and the number of points being scored? Right. It's um, it's box score stats. So like, like how he's affecting, you know, defensive rebounding and um, everything else. So so who are the top five in, in defensive? Defensive box yeah. BPM, Draymond Green, Rudy, is it Gobert? It's Gobert, Gobert. right? Yeah. Gobert. Uh, Russell Westbrook and Giannis and Westbrook is an interesting case in uh, defensive BPM because, like, we were poking around this a little bit ago because Westbrook's another guy who does not play the best defense. So I was looking at defensive uh, BPM and surprised to see Russ there. So I was like, well, let's see what uh, RPM says, so the real plus minus. And in there, he is 251st out of 450. (laughs) So where's Harden on that metric? 390th out of 450. Okay. So I, I... in reading that Time magazine and in assessing in my own mind where Harden should be this season, because he is right now in my mind the MVP, but I'm, I'm having a hard time then balancing how deficient he seems to be on defense. Because we've gotten carried away about just making an example of the snippets of video where he's like turns his back or stands around on defense. And I didn't know if it was one of those things where maybe he actually is more effective on defense. If you were actually on the court with him and playing with him and saw him every day over the course of year with like things like deflections and certain help side rotations that don't necessarily, they don't end in steals. They don't end up in whatever metrics we can see, but it seems like, if he is better on defense than we think, it's falling through some sort of crack that nobody can measure, which makes you think that he's just not at all good at it. He's not that good at it. Like he had a he had a little run where he was like kind of improving at the team level a few years ago, but at this point he's just asked to do a whole lot on offense that I mean it's understandable. But if you look at um, so the offensive and defensive ratings when he's on the court and off, so just his basic you know rating on off. Um, so on offense, like he is plus eleven, I think it's. Um, uh, he's 117. Um, the offensive, the Rockets are plus uh, 117 per 100 possessions when he's on the court. And that's a points. Points per 100 possessions when he's on the court, 109.2 when he's off. For defense, they give up 109.4 when he's on the court and go down to 104.6 per 100 possessions when he's off. And we should know this is his best season for def- defensive box plus minus of his career. So he's getting better, uh, but not at a level that, you know, brings him up to that, that greatest player status. So Kyle, where do you stand on when you're trying to – what metric you would use and where you would land on who's the best player in the world? I mean I tend not to just fall back on the one. Um, I, I'll, I'll look at the BPM and the RPM just you know to kind of gauge. But I mean kind of it's a team-by-team basis. Um, 
I mean, I tend to go with a guy like Kawhi Leonard or LeBron James, who like we're not going to talk about that much this year. Or, I mean, it's also like the baseball thing where we were arguing a few years ago whether it was Cabrera or Trout. And like you can argue that it's Trout, but like maybe not the year that Cabrera has the triple crown. Like Russell Westbrook is averaging a triple double, and like we can pick nits about that. But I mean, that's still really impressive. It does bring up the question of sort of whether it's a fluid thing. This idea of best player, essentially, you have to rest the the, the title belt away from somebody, and and it does seem like the NBA is so lousy with talent right now that it would be, would be difficult for for Harden to turn it on and 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 take that from from others, right? But to answer the question, um, I tend to think that like we should take into account defense, and like Kawhi Leonard is a guy who has maybe eighty percent of as good stats as James Harden, while also being you know a Defensive Player of the Year caliber player, and it's hard to discount that, even if you know it's not as you know eye popping. But I mean, so this does bring up a question that um, if we're going too far, because like the thing is always like everyone's like, oh, yeah, defense is half the game. And, you know, you can't just put up your offensive numbers and ignore, you know, half the game. And it's true that you spend half the time on the court playing defense. But, like, we still haven't done, like, as much research into whether defense, like, one player can affect a defense as much as one player can that affect That affects the outcome of the yes. game versus – and I'm wondering when you say that, you know, Kawhi has maybe 80% of the offensive stats of, of, of James Harden – how much energy goes into that last 20% for James Harden to be 20% better offensive statistics? Like that's a good amount of energy to raise from an A to an A plus or however you want to classify it in, in old school terms. Like how do you then transfer if he had that 20% of energy back, how would that be, in it, be able to pour into the defensive side of the ball? Like it's impossible to say, I feel like somehow I'm defending James Harden here. It's crazy. <laughs> for sure. I mean, like, I I tend to think even if he was you know putting all of his energies into it like he's like a kind of limited player like lateral movement and you know just instincts for you know coverage you know pick and roll stuff um, but I mean that's part of like the coaching job like of yeah. you know putting players out there with him that you know can kind of cover for his deficiencies yeah because like uh, being able to be like a high IQ player on the offensive side of the ball you can always be constantly churning and be one step ahead of the defense because you have the ball so you're in charge. You can certainly attempt to do that on the defensive side of the ball. You can be processing, like, trying to be one step ahead, like, on a fast break defense or, but or like, in the half court. But if you don't have the lateral speed, like, you are going to always be a deficient defensive player at some level, even if the coach can be like, they're a good system defender. They're always going to, like, cut off the baseline and be on help side. But at some point, if you're James Harden, you can excel on offense with limited lateral skills, but... You can't always be effective on defense. Right. And I mean, so here's where I have maybe like a hot take, which I don't know. Do it. I throw them down all the time in this (laughs) podcast. Like mental fatigue is just as real as like physical fatigue. So like when the entire offense, like when you're running it, is just running through you, you're making all the decisions or at least most of them. Um, That's like like it's like keeping your attention for a full 40 minutes or whatever you're playing in a playoff game is – mentally taxing mentally draining and you're also running around quite a bit yeah and so like when james harden like has a mental lapse like i know everyone else is running just as hard and thinking pretty hard but like i kind of understand that where like you've been making a bunch of decisions all game all game long and yeah you forgot to do this thing because like maybe you're thinking about you know what you're going to do on the pick and roll next next time down yeah i mean i always remember when we would go into a low one four and someone else would have the ball i would stand in the corner and I mean, you got at least eight seconds to zone out, <laughs> and like that is ref- that is refreshing for the same the way next- as being on the bench would be. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because you're just standing there and you're like, oh, they're dribbling up top and I don't need to process anything right, right now. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. All that said, LeBron doesn't have as many of those plays as James Harden. He does just as much thinking. So, you know. So that's why LeBron's the best player in the world. And we're out. <laughs> Settled. Good. James, Easy. sorry. You're welcome, as always, to come on the show and argue with us in person. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's leave it there. Kyle, thanks for doing double duty today with Neil Out. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. Now it's time for our significant digit when a telling number from the world of sports is brought to us. Kate, today mm-hmm. I'm bringing you. Our significant digit. Yeah. Our significant significant digit is 110. That was the number of points that Grinnell College scored against Illinois College on Saturday. I was there as yeah. part of this annual ba- uh, college basketball road trip that my friends and I do. The idea, you know, is to see different parts of the country, taking some games. We saw Iowa uh, play. It was such a boring game. I'm now blanking on who they played. Iowa play Illinois uh, in Iowa City. Then uh, Creighton. Um, uh, played Georgetown uh, in a Big East game in Omaha. And in the middle, we stopped at Grinnell College, a Division three school in Grinnell, Iowa. And I saw basketball like I'd, re- I'd heard about Grinnell College and I'd read about it, but I had not quite realized the total havoc that they play mm-hmm. on the court. So for listeners, this is this is called the Grinnell system. This is something, the, the, the way that they play. And it's it's famous for letting this guy, Jack Taylor, score 138 points mm-hmm. a few years ago in one, in one game. Um, it was – so how to describe it? It is constant trapping, two double or triple teams at all times, inbounds it's, – it's a full-court press all the time. The other team in Illinois College, in this case, had a player basically cherry-picking at one at, at the other end of the court. And Grinnell wouldn't play behind that player. They played in front of the player to try and pick off the pass as it came over, almost like a free safety, sort of roaming So let them throw it. Let them throw it deep if they want. Lure them into it. Or, quite the opposite, so lure them into it, try and get turnovers and everything. They're going for steals on every play, but also... Be okay with the idea of a layup on the other end because it's two points and it gets you the ball back. Right. Because part of the point is to shoot as many times as possible, but threes as possible as well. And so it, they try and take 100 shots per game, um, which in college basketball for 40 minutes is, is particularly a huge a huge number. Right. You're usually taking about 40 to 45, right? right? And so the trick is that it's exhausting to watch. Like I was exhausted by midway through the half – but to play was obviously even more exhausting. So they have full line changes that they do, mm-hmm. like in hockey. Yep. Five players on, five players off. At one point, the the PA guy just like gave up and said, and some new players for Grinnell are coming in. Um, and uh, and all of this has led to a really weird uh, thing where the locals come out. They love watching it. It's great for recruits because you get to be super athletic and in shape and, and play this style that – you're a Division three athlete. You're not going to the pros anyway, so it doesn't particularly matter. Um, and and the team has been uh, pretty good this year. There's been some academic scandal in which they had to forfeit four games. Um, so because, not necessarily hustling to class in the same way. Well, they they, they they uh, evidently played a, a player who was ineligible. So they're sixteen and seven overall without those four forfeits of of games that they won. Right. Thirteen and five in the conference, so nine and nine. You know, when you when you forfeit those four games, um, but but most importantly, from from where I sit, they've taken twelve hundred and forty five three pointers. Uh, that's one hundred seventy five more than any D one team. And they've scored an average of 115.2 points per game this season, which I thought, like, no one else could possibly right. be touching, right? But they are not top 
in Division Three basketball because Greenville College in Illinois plays the same system, plays the same Grinnell system, and and won their conference this year. And Greenville has taken 1,287 threes, about uh, 42 or 42 more threes, and they scored 130.4 points per game, 15 more than Grinnell. But there's a silver lining. My beloved Grinnell Pioneers beat Greenville in Phew. November and beat them bad. A couple questions yeah. before I swoop in with judgment. What percentage of their shots are three? So if they're taking about 100 shots a game, are they taking 60? I guess my guess would be like 60 to 70 threes per game. Is it more than that? Uh, so they played 23 games this season. They've taken 1,245 threes, and they've taken 1,990 field goals. I'm trying to figure out if that's oh, inclusive. Okay. So twelve hundred threes and nineteen hundred field goals. Yeah, but that that might be inclusive of, of the three pointers. No, it wouldn't be. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know what that percentage is, but maybe like seven, seven, sixty-five percent. Well, that, that that's why it depends if it's inclusive. It is inclusive. Okay. So twelve hundred plus another seven hundred. Right. Yeah. So that's, two point field goals. Yeah. That's that's seventy something. Sixty. How when when they did these line changes? Yeah, about how many minutes was each line on the floor? Uh, it was about probably 90 seconds. The thing is, there's, there's a huge number of stoppages of play because there are so many turnovers and so many out of, out of bounds. And, and the other trick is that if you are a shoot, if you're shooting a free throw for Grinnell and you're shooting two after your first free throw, you know, the whole line changes except for you because you're the one taking the free throw. So four new players come in and in order to get off the court and get your rest, you have to make that second free throw. Otherwise, there isn't a stoppage of play in, or- in order to make it happen. Um, and so it was just a whole different way of thinking about basketball. And I asked um, some people behind me, uh, one of whom was a mother of one of the players, about how they get beat. You know, like, because it, it was so intoxicating to watch them play basketball. You just wanted everyone to play basketball like this. And she said they get beat when there's a really good big big man for the other team who the, who the, uh, who the other offense can run their offense through because Grinnell's not big enough and that other player can just sit and really cherry pick and make every layup but if, uh, on the other end of the court. But if you can't, if you don't have a good inside game and you're going to miss some of the gimmies or don't have good hands, and so yeah. the triple team uh, trap might 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 uh, force a turnover, then they're sort of your, your chum for in the water. We're going to turn this into a full-length segment? No, I have, I have like, quick <laughs> thoughts. I get very judgmental about random styles of play. Mm-hmm. Part of that is that we lost to Villanova in the NCAA tournament. And Villanova, when you were in Colorado. Yeah, in the... Sweet 16 to get to the Elite Eight, and Villanova was playing a drain-the-shot-clock style and crash the offensive boards and limit games to like being in the 30s or 40s. Points, not field goal attempts. And I don't like when most of the time, 90, 99% of when you play basketball, whether you're playing pickup, you're playing one-on-one, you're playing three-on-three growing up, it's like there's a flow and a rhythm to the game. And then to completely break that, whether it's to like play four corners basketball like Villanova was doing or to play like Grinnell's playing, it feels like cheating in a way, even though I know it's so, not. So the game was super chippy. And my friends and I were talking about how annoying it must be to play not just a team who's like taking bombing threes over and over again to try and run up the score because they can ru- they can go cold at any point And you need that 25 point buffer because yeah. it can shrink to 12 super quickly. But also... Um, because they force you to change your style of play and run 
more than you're going to because run. Because you can't I, play, quote-unquote, normal basketball against them. But your team isn't used to line changes. No. And so you might only be seven deep, whereas Grinnell's uh, 15 deep. And so all of a sudden, it's really exhausting to, to sort of be put through the ringer like that. Right, and I love when people zig when everyone's zagging or zagging when everyone's zigging, but there's something about this having played against schemes like that that gets under my skin, which I know is part of the point. But then I also, and I know this is just the sig dig, but... A lot of things in life I'm like a social constructionist about, right? I'm like, well, you know, this is just the way our culture evolved, mm-hmm. our humans mm-hmm. evolved. And there's uh, there are times when I think about the way Grinnell plays basketball where I'm like, well, if we replayed basketball in a Petri dish, dish would it always be played the way we currently have it? Or did it just so happen that maybe the first first people who played it like liked back to the basket style and it kind of grew outward from there? And if it happened again, is it possible that the Grinnell would be like the standard style That's of basketball? That's interesting. I think I, I believe in the market maybe a little more than you do in the sense that like at this level of play, it's maybe possible and and you know could spread. Let's say and this this other college Greenville that's doing it is sort of evidence that that it has spread because they have just picked up recently. But if you were it can't, this can't work at, at, in the NBA because players are are too good. They're too able to dribble uh, to, to pass out of a double double or a triple team and and uh, exploit the sort of not being covered at all. And one of the things about Grinnell's defense is Illinois College, the opponent, was taking wide open three points and 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 layups. And so it's just if you're able to execute when given more space to do so, then you're gonna be you're gonna beat Grinnell. Yeah, but time. I guess my thinking was more like if basketball hadn't been invented yet. And it became invented in today's evolution of the human body, where the first people who got a hold of it were more like speedy guards, and they were the ones who developed the game. Would they develop it from like a guard out perspective, which is kind of how Grinnell plays, versus when it was first introduced in like a peach basket? And the way that the peach basket hung, it was like you wanted your back, you wanted to be closer to the basket. But the tall people are still going to show up and exploit. The guard focus play, right? Like it might. Okay, I, I, I would and argue that that enough basketball games are played, and there's enough money in basketball. There's enough innovate. sample size that it's played exactly. to the most that part of the way reached, it should be played. We've reached the equilibrium, and that equilibrium shifts every now and then when Steph Curry shows up or right. whatever else. Or now that we have Anthony Davis and Demarcus Cousins together, yeah. the equilibrium will shift back to the middle. And you know, big men win again. That's right. Uh, all right, Kate. Thanks for talking about basketball with me all show. It was an all basketball show. It was. Thanks, Chad. Right mm-hmm. up my alley. Yeah. Uh, Neil Payne, thanks, thanks uh, as always for going on vacation, recharging. Yeah, thanks for going to Toronto, recharging yourself. He's back from Canada. Okay, he won't you. get off Slack. I've scolded him about four times. <laughs> Neil, if you're listening to this, stop. Take Relax. Vacation. We are not important enough. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Our podcast system is Jody Avergan. Our intern is Kara Chin. We got production assistance from Tony Chow. And Jorge Estrada. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Send in those reviews before Friday of the show on iTunes. And uh, we'll put you in the running for our Sloan tickets. Find us on your favorite podcasting app. We're also on iTunes, of course, as well. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. While you're, be- while you're there, you should review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. As I just said, send it in. Podcast at 538. Dot com and uh, our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chubb Matlin. Talk to you next time.